Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 245. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. There is war in Israel. There is war in Gaza. There is war in Ukraine. There is war in America against extremism and some who are waging political war against our Department of Defense. Stakes have never been higher. And now is most definitely a time to stay vigilant. Because back home in America, we still don't even have a Speaker of the House, which is an epically disgraceful shit show. You've got small people with radical agendas in big positions blowing it all up and hurting America and our allies while all this war unfolds around the globe. And Putin and Hamas love seeing it. That's why so many of our enemies are celebrating. But we've got to hold strong. And our military is in the middle of all of it. And we've got an important show to help you understand that. We've been through a lot. Trump, COVID, Ukraine, Israel. What's next? China? No matter what's next and no matter what's happened, the American military has been in the middle of all of it. Strategically, tactically, militarily, economically, and politically. So we're bringing back a returning champion to help us sort through all of it. My friend, a frequent guest on this show, and one of the best military reporters in the country, the Washington Post, Dan Lamoth. Dan's fresh off a tour with the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General C.Q. Brown. He was one of only a few reporters accompanying the general during all this stuff unfolding. And he joins me to talk about that and much more. Dan Lamont is a special kind of independent American. And he's been covering C.Q. Brown, who is also a very important kind of independent American. And we're going to help you stay vigilant, stay informed, and be ahead of what's next as an independent American. This show has always sat at the intersection between national security, culture, and politics. And this is a time for us to flex that muscle in a big way. So I'm going to bring you conversations like this as often as I can. And they're going to be more frequent. So be sure to check wherever you got this podcast more often for new episodes of Independent Americans. Welcome to a time of extreme, dynamic, ongoing chaos. Welcome to our new normal. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 245. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world. The world is again on fire. It is one thing after another, and national security and politics are at the epicenter of all of it. 
And the man that is a returning champion, a friend of this show that will be joining us, uh, is smack dab in the middle of all of it, just as he always has been after appearing two other times on this show. Uh, he's one of the smartest reporters in military and national security. Uh, he's a very bu busy man. He's going to be a lot busier, I think, in the next couple of months. The great and powerful Dan Lamoth is back with us on Independent Americans. Welcome back, sir. Thanks for having me. Um, so as I said, you're going to be busy, man, uh, as if you weren't busy enough. Um, I want to talk about your trip with CQ Brown. I want to talk about Israel. I want to talk about China. Um, but let's ground ourselves in, in where are you and how are you, man? Yeah, I'm in Northern Virginia right now. Um, you know, I worked a good portion through the weekend uh, as paying attention to what's going on on Gaza. Um, but yeah, at the, at the moment, I'm 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 working from DC area in and out of the Pentagon, trying to make sense of what happened. Uh, I was in Brussels last week. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, CQ Brown. I was with General Brown last week um, and, and got back, and and we, you know we kind of rolled right in, rolled right into con continuing to cover this. Can I start with that? You're with CQ Brown. We've covered it on this show. He's the new uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's finally been confirmed and is finally in the role. Um, you were you were with him, and can you talk about? You've talked about this before. How many other people were with him? And were you with him when the Israel news started to unfold, or that trip just ended? Yeah, the the the, the trip, the trip had a, the trip came after uh, the attack by Hamas. Um, the trip invite uh, came before, so uh, you know you're you're immediately left wondering what might change, what kind of access will there be, um, what kind of challenges will there be. Um, you know, do you end up going any additional places? Like these things all happen when you're on these trips. Uh, as it turned out, uh, General Brown did uh, Brussels. Um, it was a quick down and back trip. Uh, Secretary Austin was in Brussels at the same time. Uh, he went on to Israel uh, while while we came back. So you don't know if you're going to make a turn and just keep on going to Israel or go somewhere else every time you get on one of these yeah. trips. Always, right? always pack extra clothes on these trips. It's I, I want to dig deep the behind the cur curtain on this, Dan, because I think this is a side of this that folks don't understand. And it's also been, in my view, in contrast to how Ukraine has done operations. I mean, I was reflecting with a friend. There aren't a lot of embeds, Western embeds on the front lines in Ukraine right now. And that's been, I think, a deliberate move on behalf of the Ukrainian military. But the American military, you know, pre-9-11, pre-invasion of Iraq has been um, really trumpeting how, how open doors they are. But, but how many other reporters are with you and the chairman uh, when a trip like that unfolds? And are you alongside him the whole time? Do you get a couple hours with him each day? How does that work? Um, so in, in this trip, it was two other journalists. Um, so, and that's pretty standard for, uh, for a chairman trip. Uh, the defense secretary often takes a slightly larger pool. It can be anywhere from three to probably a dozen, depending on the trip. I would say in the in the Austin era, it's generally been maybe six or so. And and he's made available to you each day for a couple of hours, or, or are you tagging along for everything and just see what happens? Um, usually, there's there's touch points planned ahead. Uh, often they're on the plane, uh, which is you know a spot when you're both kind of contained in the same area with uh, you know some potential. Um, you know he's he's got plenty he can do. He can connect from anywhere. Uh, but yeah, you generally get pulled into the plane, uh, into the back of the plane to spend some time with him. Uh, that happened here. Uh, we went on the record for maybe 10, 15 minutes. Uh, you know, we, we pushed some of that right away. Um, you know, and then you generally spend some time, get his thoughts. Uh, it's often a mix of on and off the record. Uh, that's very typical as well. 
and, and that's, that's valuable. I mean, that, that helps me understand his thinking, that helps me understand uh, to the extent we can what we should be watching for. Um, you don't necessarily see him every day on a trip that's that long. Uh, and, and I and I would note that that on this trip, you know, this was a Ukraine defense contact group trip. They did all of that. Uh, President Zelensky was in Brussels at the same time I was. That that was new and different. He had not been to a contact group meeting in person. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, Brown and and Secretary Austin both were pulled uh, away for for phone calls, including some with the White House, uh, as a result of what was happening in Israel and Gaza. Dan, you've covered other chairmen. You've covered Millie. You've been around Millie. Um, I think folks are getting to know CQ Brown. I've been incredibly impressed by him, by his humility, by his personal story. Um, you know, he's a fighter pilot that I think you and others have, have, have talked about how he had to eject once. I was with him just a few weeks before uh, he was formally announced. Can you tell us what your impressions are in, in what kind of a leader CQ Brown is? I mean, people have this image of Millie as a former Princeton hockey player, but what kind of a guy is, is CQ Brown who is now going to be the ep- in the epicenter of all of this? Um, my observation so far, as well as some of the previous reporting I've, I've done, um, you know, he's thoughtful. Uh, he's not a yeller. He's not somebody that you're going to hear kind of banging the gavel and, you know, banging the podium as he's speaking. Um, you know, but, but he's, he's well thought out. He has plans. Um, you know, I think he's going to probably rein in a bit, uh, what the chairman's, uh, office says, as opposed to what General Milley did. Uh, a lot of people think that's probably overdue. Um, I think in some ways he might parallel, uh, General Dunford in terms of the, the kind of the tone he takes to the office. The, um, you know, he'll engage. He's going to, um, you know, be involved. He's going to have a, a, a public presence. Uh, but perhaps a bit less so than General Milley. Yeah, that, that, that that's going to be interesting. I'm sure that would be his desire, but I wonder if the current events are going to allow it, where we're going to want to hear from him, you know, on almost a a, a daily basis. Um, can you talk about, you know, th- th- I, we can't just detach this from the politics, right? I mean, his 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 uh, his confirmation was held up for months because of the Tommy Tuberville shenanigans. Um, is, is there kind of a sigh of relief that they can finally get to work? And, and how much of uh, the continuing uh, drama of these holds is impacting his work in, in the day-to-day? I mean, are there immediate folks that would be around him that aren't around him because of the Tuberville holds right now? Um, I think the, the the most significant observation I had on that is because uh, everything was delayed, uh, he didn't seem to have as many days, weeks, uh, to prepare for the new job, uh, in terms of sort of the left seat, right seat, you would hear, uh, where, you know, you, you, you kind of have two people sort of in the same job at the same time, able to pay attention. So he didn't have all of the meetings you might necessarily expect with foreign leaders, his counterparts overseas prior to being put right in the job. Uh, so I think there's, he's catching them quickly. Uh, but, but I think there was a period where it was like, all right, you know, fire hose. Uh, let, let me get, get a sense for what's going on. Um, you know, I think that's a challenge. Um, I think it becomes less of a challenge over time, but I think getting into the job, it was a challenge. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, more broadly, I mean, there's a lot of vacancies elsewhere still that are directly relevant, uh, to what we're seeing going on overseas. Uh, you know, the fifth fleet, uh, three star Navy admiral, uh, that, that kind of oversees the Middle East region. Uh, that's a vacancy right now. You know, these are the sorts of jobs that are going to be, you know, impacted going forward 
despite what's going on in the world. So I, I know that um, you have to be really, really careful in, in the things you do comment on and how you comment them on, but um, how do you evaluate the impact of this on morale? Morale is kind of the, always this very difficult thing to pin down and often becomes kind of a political talking point. Um, but, but can you assess the impact of these holds on morale overall and just as Israel and now Gaza and whatever else unfolds, what, what do you see as the impacts of those, the actual impacts of those holds? Because Tuberville says there's no impact whatsoever. I know that to be untrue. I think most objective people will say that's untrue. But what actual impacts are you seeing that are that are impacting the force that other folks might not see because they're not as close to it as you? Yeah, I would say objectively, it's not true that there's no impact at all. I mean, just on its face, people are uncertain when they move, how they move, where they move, if their nomination holds up, depending on how long this drags out. I don't, I don't see how you could say there's zero impact as a result. Um, I think, I think it's hard to assess, honestly. And I think it depends on the position. I think it depends on the individual. Um, you know, what I think is relevant here is that, you know, there's a growing number, not shrinking, uh, despite the chairman, chairman and some of the other, uh, joint chiefs, uh, being seated in their new roles. Uh, you know, we're still looking at upwards of 300. Uh, that will continue to go up as the year goes on. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, as we look forward, you know, there are some people uh, who are not retiring when they plan to, uh, to try and kind of stem this and make sure that somebody uh, with the seniority to hold these senior positions is in place. Uh, there are other positions where you're seeing a one-star general, where a three-star general should be, or something like that. These are likely very capable leaders in their own right, they don't have the experience you would hope for or anticipate in a three-star commander who's in charge of 30, 40, 50,000 people. Hmm. And you've just got some folks who are, who are getting, you know, half the sleep they used to get, right? I mean, they're just working over essentially unpaid overtime trying to do two jobs. And, and I think, you know, I've been pretty outspoken about how I think this really throws a wrench in our military at a time when we don't need it. I, I think it does impact morale and recruiting. I, I've asked, why more leaders aren't doing anything about it. And, and uh, now it looks like Congressman Pat Ryan, uh, the, who represents West Point, has put forward legislation to try to at least kind of slap the wrist of, of Tuberville. I don't think it's going to have any teeth, but he's the first one to kind of put forward. Is there any sense of what is happening behind the scenes to stop Tuberville from doing this, to work around, you know, the military planners are strategists. So how are they strategists? strategizing when it looks like Tuberville's not going to stop holding it and they've got to figure out what to do. What are they doing to figure that out, Dan? I mean, the on the record version would be that um, the Pentagon is largely leaving this for the Hill to handle, uh, leaving this for Senate Democrats and others to, you know, make sense of how to confirm these positions. Uh, they would tell you that that's the Senate's job. Uh, they don't want to get in the way of that. However, um, I think part of the calculus here behind the scenes is depending on how you handle it now, you know, let's, let's say you really try to, to ram through these positions one by one, hours upon hours of voting, I would note, uh, to do that for all of these positions. If you're going to do it one by one, as opposed to voting in batches, which is, you know, had been the customary goal. Somebody hadn't done anything that was weird. You vet the people. If there's nothing objectionable, nothing controversial, uh, no reason to pull them out of the pile, you can kind of voice vote style approve 30, 60, 100 people at a time that way. You do the work behind the scenes. You don't have to vote I or nay uh, 
one by one by one by one by one on all of these spots. It's simply not a great use of the Senate's time is basically the the explanation we usually get. Uh, I think there's a concern here uh, that, that you've kind of opened a, a door here to something that hadn't been done really before on this level. Um, you know, there have been holds. There certainly have been holds on the political appointee side. Uh, to, but, but to hold this many military officers for this length of time, you know, there, there, there were examples where you could say this was held for a finite number of days. But this is an ending, right? Like, that's the problem. It's just continuing to go on. Um, I think the Pentagon looks down the road and says, if they could do it now, they can do it a year from now. They can do it with the next batch. You know, how do you manage this, not only for this crisis, but to try and discourage this kind of thing from happening in the future? So Austin's been pretty outspoken about this, and he's, he's ramped up the, the, the rhetoric in, in, in kind of naming Tuberville specifically. It feels like CQ Brown's been keeping his powder dry. Um, you know, Tuberville said they met before his con- – are they talking once a week, is it kind of like, hey, every week CQ Brown's got to call up Tuberville and go, hey, Senator, you do me a favor and drop that hold? And he says, no, I'm not going to drop my hold, you know, drive on. Is, is there any communication happening between the two directly? Or And I assume staff is happening, but are the two talking directly at all? Uh, I, I don't get the sense. Uh, I cannot tell you for sure uh, at what level they're talking right now. I think the staffs are certainly staying in touch. Um, this is more on the political side as opposed to the chairman's side. So I think uh, Secretary Austin's staff is staying on this uh, to a greater extent, uh, leaving the, the chairman's side more to the ops of the world. Um, you know, we have heard periodically of calls or efforts uh, from the secretary's office to get in touch with Tuberville's staff and the senator himself. Um, but, but I don't get the sense there's a lot of movement there. There's no yeah. real bargaining that seems to be going on. Uh, DOD doesn't want to drop uh, their policy uh, that's, that's relevant here, which is you know largely based around uh, providing travel expenses to service members who may need or want an abortion. Um, and, and Senator Tuberville does not seem to be willing to back down either. Mm-hmm. So I don't get the sense there's anything ending anytime soon on this. There, there's something I want to focus on. The way you describe the Pentagon policy is the most accurate description and precise description I've heard. Because in the media, part of this is, you know, the Pentagon policy on abortion or the Pentagon po- policy to fund what Tuberville has called abortion tourism, right? But I just, I want to note that this is why your role is so important. You've been very precise in describing what it is that it, that is it, that is being contested here, the, the controversial point. And I appreciate your, your precision and your uh, accuracy around that because I think it's going to be very necessary as this continues to kind of spin around. I don't want to move. I want to get to Israel because it's so important and it's so timely. But I also want to underscore that I don't want to do what everyone else is doing, which is completely forget about Ukraine and start talking about Israel. You were with CQ Brown because he was he was meeting with with, with the action group. Um, there's a, a huge story in The Times talking about, you know, have we have we passed peak Ukraine? I am concerned that we have where Zelensky is going to see you know political attacks on the on the Ukraine war. We've seen funding held up. I think that may be our new normal. Can can you shed any light into um, what the Pentagon is doing or thinking or what you saw? Um, because it feels like, you know, the cameras just moved from Ukraine to Israel and they might not come back, which Putin would obviously love to see and has Zelensky very concerned. Uh, I think one of the major messages of this particular contact group meeting, uh, you know, which is pushing 50 allies meeting 
uh, in Brussels this time. Sometimes it's in Germany, sometimes it's in Belgium. Um, you know, and, and basically trying to, to level set that the funding is not going away, that allies are continuing to provide uh, munitions and, and other equipment. Um, I, th- I think we're left in a spot where it's not really certain long term how this looks. And I think one of the challenges, especially as uh, the political messaging in the United States goes on, is, you know, the, the Biden administration motto on this is that they will continue to support Ukraine as long as it takes. But left unsaid there is that's assuming Biden administration or a similar administration is in charge. We don't know that right now. Uh, You know, that there's a finite level of time that you can say for sure that's the case. Uh, So that does leave you, you know, quite a bit of time forward, but no certainty beyond that. Yeah, it it feels like another promise that the military is going to make that they can't keep. The country can't keep. I mean, it feels like promises we made to Afghanistan and and the Iraqis and so many others over the course of this. It, it, I mean, that would be, I, I think it would be the right thing, the, the best thing for American and, and global security if we could do that. But I don't think Biden can keep that promise. I don't think, you know, CQ Brown can keep that promise right now, given the way Congress seems to be yanking the the, the plug on things here. Can I ask you um, to, to, to underscore or at least to illuminate for us, is there, is there any change to the military weapons and support that uh, is coming to Ukraine has been scheduled to come to Ukraine over the last couple of weeks. Have these fundings, have they cut off, you know, Attackums or Abrams, for example, is there any uh, specific impact that you've seen so far that a train has stopped that would have otherwise been going to Ukraine? We've been watching for it, uh, largely in light of uh, the Israel Gaza, Gaza conflict. Uh, you know, just, just the idea that precision munitions that Israel might need, for instance, uh, are also precision munitions that Ukraine might need. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. Uh, I, I think they're fighting different kinds of wars. Uh, I think Israel is a different military from a starting point than, than the Ukrainian military was and still is. Um, you, you know, the Ukrainian um, military doesn't really have much of an air force even now. Uh, the Israeli one does. Uh, so you, you're you're seeing things. You know, uh, small diameter bombs. Uh, JDAMs, things like that. I think they may flow to Israel. You know, Ukraine had some utility, maybe for some of these things, uh, fired in different ways. But Israel is ready now uh, and, and already has some of these things already. Uh, I mean, I know you're going to be covering this, but one of the things to watch for is how our industrial base defense uh, contracting procurement system handles this, right? Like a, a turn, but also a new level of demand. It's something I think China has been banking on and many folks have underscored from the national security community and Trump has kind of exaggerated into saying they're running out of ammunition because it's not at that point but there have been significant disruptions and it's going to be a test to our um to our defense system right like can they move and, and respond to the new weapon systems that are going to be needed the new chain the new locations right that they're going to be needed but let me ask you to shift over to Israel you've done some initial reporting on how the American military is responding and I want you to go I want you to go deeper on that but I want to ask you a specific question. Um, Are there special operations forces in or around Israel right now, Delta Group, for example, that have been specifically assigned to get Americans? Uh, I mean, there's plenty of reporting out there at this point that would uh, certainly tell you that that there are U.S. special operations forces uh, working in in and around the U.S. embassy. Um, They're advising. I don't get the sense there's any kind of capture or retake missions uh, imminent. Uh, I think that's a very dicey proposition. 
Uh, you know, one of the things the Biden administration is balancing here is not getting dragged in directly into a conflict um, if they don't have to. Because, uh, I mean, one of the one of the one of the variables here is if you see uh, U.S. forces in Gaza, uh, how does Iran respond? How does Hezbollah respond? You know, does that widen the conflict? Uh, so not unlike Ukraine, there's a certain calculus of if we do this, what, you know, what's the second and third order effect of those things? I, the, you know, the, these hostages that are that are in Gaza. I mean, that's a that's a tough road to pull right now. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the one that, that that I'm you know watching most closely because I think we know that if there were people that went unmarked uniforms that were going to go in to get American hostages, we wouldn't know about it until after it was over. Um, but, but at the, at the same time, I, I wonder what those conversations are like, where we say to the IDF, you know, go get our Americans, or do we say we're going to get our Americans, right? When they, if they do, if they are able to get locations on specific American hostages, I would imagine this is going to be that kind of Osama bin Laden type war room question for, for, for Biden that we will see or not see unfold in the next couple of weeks. In, in the meantime, Dan, what do we know about what's in Israel? We know there are a limited number of forces at the embassy. Can you shape for America, uh, for our audience, what other American forces are already there or nearby uh, and, and what's en route? In terms of Israel, it's a very small number. Um, you're looking at the Marines who uh, kind of staff and man the embassy security-wise. Uh, you're looking at some U.S. military advisors and special operations forces that are largely I think they're, you know, they're they're largely trying to make the Israeli military smarter on what's what's happening, what's available, uh, you know, what's going on, how to integrate the intelligence, those sorts of things. Uh, but you know, as recently as late last week, the Pentagon is de- definitively saying there is no plans to put U.S. troops on the ground. Now they can kind of say, well, except for when it comes to those that are already there in this limited kind of embassy-centric role. Um, but the question becomes, at what point do you expand beyond that? Does the uh, Israeli military need uh, a larger number of uh, intelligence uh, you know, analysts? Does, do they need medical capabilities that the United States could bring to bear? Um, you know, radar, uh, just a you know, variety of capabilities. You, know, you wonder about, uh, you know, they have Iron Dome, and it's a very capable system preventing rockets. But given the sheer volume, particularly because you're not sure what Hezbollah will do, is that enough? Uh, do you need any other kind of air defense capabilities? And that, I would note, is something that is a very significant, uh, you know, competition. If they decide, well, we got, we need to send more air defense to Israel, there's a very finite number of air, de- air defense systems in the world right now. Ukraine wants anything they can get their hands on. That's, that's, that's also part of the equation. Dan, I don't know the answer. We, there are Patriot missile batteries in Israel. Are they manned by American soldiers or by Israeli soldiers? Do we know? Uh, I would, I'm based, based on the other reporting, I would think that this is something that we provided to Israel some time ago as opposed. Yeah. So I guess the, the, the big, the big scenario that I would be planning for if I was in the White House, and, and I wonder if you've gotten any color on this is if tomorrow Hamas posts, posts a video of American civilians being held. And they say, you know, we are going to kill these American civilians in X hours or something like that. Have you, have you gotten any sense of contingency planning around CQ Brown or anyone else about what they're going to do or, or, or and you, even your own professional assessment? What do you think they would do? I think it's a really tough, you know, not unlike when, when ISIS had the hostages, I think it's a really tough thing to say, 
you know, somebody's just been beheaded on camera for the sake of argument. We're going to do X, Y, Z immediately in response. I don't think we're in that situation where those sorts of things are feasible. Um, uh, you know, I think especially with Israel launching likely a ground offensive within days um, or hours even, um, you know, there is a sort of management of how does this all integrate? Um, you know, right now, the U.S. seems to be largely leaning on the idea that Israel is very capable military, um, you know, that they're they're balancing, um, you know, kind of leaning on Israel a bit for the humanitarian side of this, uh, you know, allow civilians to move south, for instance. Uh, hey, are you sure they've been able to move south or are they blocked from doing so? Yeah. Those are parts of the equation. The water was shut off for about a week, uh, which is a pretty significant step that had nothing to do uh, with Hamas in terms of uh, the amount of people it affects. It affects way more than Hamas, I guess I should say. Uh, as of yesterday, we're now hearing the water's back. Uh, right. So that's the sort of thing. Israel's going in. Uh, it looks like they're going in heavy. Uh, we have also already seen a great number of videos of buildings that have been flattened. And, uh, you know, the, the casualty count is well over 2,000. Uh, many of those are civilians. Uh, so this is an ugly situation already right now prior to the ground offensive. I mean, the, the other scenario that is, I think, likely to unfold is you've got Americans with dual citizenship and you've got Americans who who serve in the IDF. I, I think of Congressman Brian Mast has been very outspoken from Florida saying that he's the only member of Congress who served in the IDF and in the U.S. military. He had, I think he had an IDF uniform he was wearing in, in, in the halls of Congress the other day. But the, we have no sense of how many Americans uh, are, are serving in the IDF. Do we, Dan? Uh, I, I don't have that number on hand. I know from my own uh, kind of just life, you know, I have former college classmates who served in the IDF. So, yeah. assumedly, that sort of thing continues. Um, some of them are, are dual. Some of them are, um, you know, the interesting family dynamics. I, I spoke to a woman last week. Uh, she went to high school in Northern Virginia. She's lived in Israel for the last several years. Extended family, family members of hers were taken and taken back into Gaza. Uh, one of those was an American citizen in her 80s. Uh, so, you know, these are all factors. Yeah. Yep. Um, can I ask you to just talk about Millie for a second? You know, he's now retired. Um, you know, he had a retirement party and he's probably uh, enjoying a little bit of time where he doesn't have to shave for a couple of days and, and he doesn't have to be in the spotlight. But you've reported on this man pretty closely and I think smartly for a long time. Um, do you have any sense of what he's going to do next? You know, if, if I were a political strategist and I was on Biden's team, I'd ask him to go on the stump against Trump or maybe other groups will come out. Many of these generals go to corporate settings and serve on boards or go into academia. Do you have any sense of what Milley might do? I don't, uh, other than there's been a lot of discussion of him writing some form of leadership book. Um, I'm waiting to see whether that happens. I'm waiting to see where that would go if it does. Um, he's got a place in the DC area that aside from, you know, where he was living at Fort Meyer, um, you know, and, and I, and I think at this point it, it's, it's decompressed a bit, you know, he's got children, he's got grandchildren. Uh, I, I think, you know, these are all things that, you know, he has time now to take a deep breath. Um, we'll see where he, we'll see, we'll see what he does. You know, none, none of these guys have made the jump. Like I think back to Admiral Mullen and Petraeus and McChrystal and, and McRaven and so many others. Very few of them have made the jump into politics. 
Uh, do, you, do you think that might be in the cards for Millie? Do you think he'd, he'd run for office somewhere? I, I have no real good sense of that. Um, you know, generally speaking, uh, a lot of military officers see the, the chairman's role as trying to be nonpartisan, trying to stay out of politics. Uh, with the caveat that if you're going to jump in, you can jump in with both feet and be a politician. Uh, but just, you know, there, there's a calculus of when do you weigh in politically? What do you say? Um, you know, so consequently, you've seen, um, you know, General Dempsey, General Dunford, Dunford, uh, weigh in on occasion. And usually it's in very specific lanes, you know, uh, advocating for, you know, the nonpartisan nature of the military, things like that. Um, you know, maybe voting, something like that but not jumping in to attack Senator X on a given day over something they said. The, the great exception being General Mike Flynn, right, who's now out there. I want to ask you because I've got you. Um, I know, you know, Congressman Gallego from Arizona and others brought up an issue, I don't know if it was legislation, to try to review um, whether or not there was a place to have him court-martialed or have his pension removed. He's getting a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, uh, a year still is in his in his military retirement. Have you have you heard anything about that inside the Pentagon or reported on or, or, or have you done any reporting on anything related to review this policy where now it seems like a lot of generals are much more political than ever before? And, and you know, I would argue and others that Flynn's been, you know, supporting insurrection and overturning the election specifically for Flynn and his and his retirement. Do you have any any news or any any sense of that specific issue? You know, there, there's a really interesting exchange that was in General Milley's testimony um, on the, you know, before the January 6th, uh, you know, committee that that's kind of been investigating this, uh, you know, and, and he was about as frank as you could be in that setting, uh, specifically raised, you know, he, he was asked specifically about the Flynn situation, um, you know, and he, he kind of noted that, that he disagrees with him greatly, um, and he didn't really recommend one course of action or the other but he made it very clear that doing anything along these lines would be a very significant complicated step and dicey for the military itself politically um, so you know as much as i think even someone like general milley disagrees with what he's seen from general flynn uh, i think he was flagging you know like hey warning you can do this but you know there are a lot of complexities that go with it uh, a lot of downstream challenges that may would go with it. I read it as largely saying, hey, you can do this, but this is a major, major step and you might want to think twice. Right. Um, you cover so many good things. You also had a story about a uh, a dogfighting ring that 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 a, a senior leader inside the Department of Defense, I think, right? Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, was running. You, you exposed that and that's unfolded. Um, I, I encourage everyone to read that piece. I don't think we have enough time to go into it, but I think that was an important one that you wrote about. I want to ask you about another one that was in the news for like three days nonstop and has now disappeared. Do you have any sense of what happened to Private King, the 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 soldier who went across the DMZ into North Korea, was held? What's going on with Private King? Where is he? And, and do you have any sense of what's going to happen next? Um, so at last check, and I think it's likely very much still the same, um, you know, they're sort of slowly reintegrating him. I think they're trying to get a sense for his mental health. Uh, you know, I think they're trying to get a sense for his physical health. Um, you know, he's likely, you know, like you look at what he's done, you look at, um, you know, some of the things that had already emerged, uh, in his recent past, he very well could face some form of military discipline. Uh, but, but I don't get there's a sense that there's a rush to push that forward. Um, 
you know, and, and whether they decide to go the sort of administrative punishment, the non, non, non judicial punishment route, or actually do a court martial. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think probably both are on the table. Um, but, but that this could drag out for a while. I don't get the sense there's any, uh, need on the Pentagon side to push this forward immediately. Dan, rounding out our summary of the wild and wacky world of, of national security and defense here, we, we can't not talk about China um, because, you know, now we've got Ukraine, we've got Israel, but the kind of the third shoe to drop, of course, would be uh, China and Taiwan, where um, all of us in the national security world are watching and waiting to see what could happen next. Do you have any update on on the, I guess, the situation uh, and, and the relationship um, around Taiwan and our military posture vis-a-vis -vis China? I think it largely holds uh, at the moment. Uh, you know, lots of lots of attention, uh, lots of jockeying. Uh, you know, even the U.S. Coast Guard uh, has a role in the Pacific at this point, largely because some of these, uh, you know, navies in the region are more like our Coast Guard than any kind of actual, you know, navy that projects power hundreds and thousands of miles. Um, so I think that's part of the equation. Uh, you're seeing China try to weigh in, in in dynamic ways in Afghanistan and other places like that. Um, you know, it's a complex problem, but I don't get the sense there's a, you know any kind of immediate movement that's going to jump to the headlines. I, I can't not talk about China. Um, uh, next time, maybe we can go deeper on the Arctic. Um, maybe, maybe one last question, alibi to use a military term. Uh, recruiting has become kind of a punching bag in this political conversation where, frankly, you know, the work you do has become more politicized than any other time, maybe in modern American history, right? The, the military, the Department of Defense is now in the middle of, of almost every culture war, right? Is the military too woke? DeSantis launched his campaign saying it was going to de-wokeify the military. Trump and Milley are, are at battle. And, and it seems like elements of the Republican Party have made the Department of Defense a focus. And one thing they continue to talk about is recruiting. I saw that the Marine Corps beat their numbers. They usually do. But do you have any sense of just how all of this shit is impacting recruiting? And what's and what's what's the real deal on where the military is on recruiting right now? It's a challenging environment. Um, and, and I think it will remain so. Um, I think part of that is the economy. Uh, I think part of that is sort of this hangover. We're in an era where the military took a pretty big L on Afghanistan. Uh, I think that's at least a, a factor. Um, I think you're seeing some service members, particularly those who are conservative in their own right, who are waving their children away uh, from serving. I think that is a dynamic. Um, but I think the, the other piece of this is, you know, the military has often struggled a bit more to recruit in sort of these periods that are, you know, um, there are no direct um, large scale American military operations overseas. It's usually easier to recruit when you have you know, or in Iraq and Afghanistan, something like that. There's always young service members stepping forward at that point, uh, partly, you know, out of patriotism, partly out of a desire to prove themselves. Um, you know, and we're kind of in a period where that's not the case. Uh, so that makes it a little trickier, um, particularly, I think, for the Army, where, you know, it's not the high tech, uh, you know, technology that the Navy and the Air Force has. Um, you know, it's, it's a little more challenging for them to meet the number, their numbers. They're also the largest service. I think that's a component as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that the Democrats want to play this up specifically, but 
I, I feel like the, the, the COVID uh, vaccine mandate was something that, that absolutely impacted recruiting, especially among conservatives and, and maybe more moderate people. Do you have any sense of now that we look a little bit further away from that to what, to what extent that specific policy mandate impacted recruiting? I, I don't. Um, I, I think that, you know, we, we've seen the numbers and, you know, some number of dozens, hundreds, low hundreds, um, that, you know, we're kind of caught up in not wanting to get the vaccine, um, you know, despite, you know, whatever eight, nine other vaccines that people were getting and have been getting for generations. Um, so yeah, I mean, the vaccine became politicized and, you know, it, some people have, uh, have claimed a uh, religious exemption that got a bit complicated. You know, what, what constitutes a religious exemption? Uh, and if I'm, you know, for the sake of argument, Catholic and saying that I don't want this vaccine, because I'm Catholic, but I'm already getting the other seven or eight, like it's hard to kind of make sense of those things. Dan, um, you've helped us make sense of things for many years. Uh, I often wish we could just put a GoPro on your head and see the world through your eyes because you're, you're close to the most powerful people and the, the most powerful military in the world uh, at, at maybe the most important time we've ever seen. So um, I'm really grateful for your tenacity, your leadership, your reporting is fantastic. You've continued to come on this show and help share your experiences and your reporting. Um, and I, I've said this before, but I just, I think what you do is a tremendous public service um, and it's a global public service in, in times like these. So thank you for all you're doing. Um, you know, you and I have nothing to escape to in football season this year because our teams are, are, are as awful as, as world politics right so now. Bad. So right? bad. I mean, your Patriots, uh, you know, we could say what, what looks worse, Congress, the Patriots or the Giants. I mean, we could have a whole show about that. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, feasibly, the Senate might be able to get a first down before the Patriots at this point. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a rough, rough, rough year to be a Patriots fan. Well, you know, maybe Belichick will retire and run for office. We never, and then we'll be covering that, right? But un until then, uh, Dan Lamoth, you've been fantastic. Thank you for joining us on, on Independent Americans. Again, everyone follow his reporting, uh, follow him on all social media platforms. I'm sure he'll break uh, a story or two before this drops tomorrow. Uh, but until next time, Dan, thanks for all you do and stay vigilant, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this conversation with Dan Lamoth. If you like it, please share it far and wide. And be sure to subscribe to Independent Americans on whatever platform brought you my voice right now. And if you're not already, please join our Patreon community. You will get episodes like this first. You'll get them without commercials. You'll get extra content. And you'll get to help me bring more of these shows to the masses. And be sure to check out independentamericans.us for extra video content, for all of our archives, for merchandise, and much more. And stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And no, you're not alone in your vigilance. We are all vigilant. And we're all in this together. From Ukraine, to North Korea, to Belgium, to Israel, to Gaza, to the Pentagon, to wherever you are right now. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraine. And down with Hamas too. And stay vigilant, America.
Righteous Media.